Well, good morning. Welcome to our Easter series called Risen. The angel said to the ladies uh, at the tomb in Matthew chapter 28 these words, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has... You got it. He has risen. And so we're going to be using this movie. How many have seen the movie, by the way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. I have seen the movie twice, and its historical accuracy is awesome. Its biblical accuracy is very well done. But what you need to understand about the movie Risen is that it is a biblical epic. It's kind of along the lines of Barabbas or The Robe. Remember those great old movies? And what it does is it picks up a storyline or a person who could be at the resurrection or the cross and basically kind of creates a fictional story around them using the historical record of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they do that in a beautiful way with this man by the name of Clavius. He is a Roman centurion. He has spent 25 years in the Roman army. He looks rather hardened, doesn't he? And all he wants now in life is simply to have a day without blood. He is so tired of his life and the way that it has been going. His gods have not done him well. And so he is somehow thrust into the middle of the death of Jesus Christ. And then Pilate commands him to find the body of Jesus because the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem were angry that his disciples supposedly stole the body of Christ. And so Clavius is the one who is put on the pursuit to find the body of Jesus. Because if you don't have a body, then you potentially have a Messiah. And the Jewish authorities couldn't have that. But along the way... As he interrogated apostles and disciples, as he talked to different people, as he began to pursue this one called Jesus, his total life was changed when he discovered he was risen. And so it's a very good movie, and I hope that it will create a good backdrop for our Easter season. So today, using the backdrop of this movie, I want us to kind of pull our thoughts into this idea. His passion... Now, the Passion of Jesus refers to the Passion Week, which begins when he rides into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday. It goes all the way through to the crucifixion and then the resurrection. The Passion of Christ is Latin for the suffering of Christ. I want you to understand how his passion or his suffering is designed to give us who know him a passion, a remarkable passion for him. So we're going to see if, we can, see if we can do that today together. What we're going to do is we're actually going to join a few ladies who find themselves at the foot of the cross, and we're going to hone in on one particular woman this morning and see if her story doesn't challenge us to be passionate for Christ. This morning, we're going to be looking in John chapter 19 together. John chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses 25 through 27. I will project them here for your sake. Here we go. John chapter 19 and verse 25 says this, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her home or to his home. Just those few verses, we're going to focus in on one of these women in particular. Uh, but before we do, I want to pray. And uh, I'd like to include in our time of prayer this morning, uh, Joey Averick. How many of you folks know Joey? He's often here leading in the morning and working with Courtney and doing stuff. Joey and my daughter Mariah are actually at a church right now in Ohio. And they are actually kind of candidating for a worship leader position. And I got a text a few minutes ago. Joey's nervous. Pray for him. So let's pray, shall we? Father, you are a good, good father. And we approach you in Jesus' name. And Father, I ask that you would grant us the privilege today of being able to see the story of a remarkable woman and use her story to challenge us to be passionate about Jesus. And Father, I also, right now, uh, I pray for Joey. Lord, as he's leading this band in worship uh, at this church in Ohio, Lord, cause your grace to rest on him. Just calm his fears. Help him just to step forward in the power of the Holy Spirit and have great liberty, I pray. Lord, they're seeking your will. They want to know what you want for them. I pray that you will make it clear. Thank you, Father. Good, good Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. So what we have here is, um, it looks like three ladies and one of Jesus' disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, who in the Gospel of John always refers to John. He never actually calls himself by name. He's always the one that Jesus, is, Jesus loves, which I think is cool. You know, if you have to be called by a name, yet my name is the one whom Jesus loves. It's not so bad. In fact, if you go by my office door, you, you will see that on my office door, I have this thing that says, Jesus love you, loves you, but I'm his favorite. So there's nothing wrong with that. You should feel that kind of affection uh, for the Lord in your own life. Uh, and so here we have John, his, apostle, uh, his, his disciple, and we have actually four women, not just three. And the reason I say that is because, consider this, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. What's his mother's name? Okay. And his mother's sister, Mary. Wait a minute. That doesn't sound quite right, does it? You know, that might work on, like, the Bob Newhart show. You know how my name's Larry, this is my brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl. You know, you can do that maybe in New Hampshire uh, or something like that, but that doesn't happen in biblical times. So there should be an and, most likely, placed after um, and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas. So, so we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, not the mother of God, but the mother of Jesus, and then we have Mary's sister. Now, according to Matthew, this woman was most likely a, a lady by the name of Salome. Salome. And we know elsewhere in Matthew that Salome was the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder. Which actually makes a lot of sense here, because if Jesus is picking his mother and putting her in the care of somebody, if all that plays out correctly, then what he is doing is he's taking his mother Mary and putting her in the care of her nephew, John. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus had brothers, but he didn't commit his mother's well-being to his brothers, because his brothers were not followers in his life. So rather, he committed his mother to someone who was an ardent follower. I remember when Bambi and I were kind of wrestling as, as parents with young children. 
You know, if anything were to happen to us, what do we do with the kids? You know, where do we want them to go? And so we honestly prayed about it, and we said, you know, my mother's not the right one. She knows Jesus, but she doesn't have a real relationship and, and growing one with him at that time. And then her folks, likewise, we didn't know. We didn't want them to go live with her folks either. So we actually first, when we were considering this, we chose David Shaw, who was the best man at my wedding. We, we put it in writing that if anything happens to us, we want our kids to go to the guy who loves Jesus and would raise them to know him. And so this is, this is what Jesus is doing. He's turning over Mary, his mother, to the care of John, his disciple. So we have two ladies, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then her sister, Salome, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas. We don't really know who this Mary is. Boy, Mary was a pretty popular name in the day, wasn't it? So there's this other lady. Again, we're not sure who she is, but some people have surmised that she could actually be uh, Mary's sister-in-law through Joseph. Not really sure. So there are these three ladies, and then there is one other woman here, and her name is Mary Magdalene, another Mary. Mary Magdalene. Now, the interesting thing is, if, if all of that kind of plays out like I just uh, said, that means that all the people who were at... Um, all those people who were at the, the cross, it means they were all family. They were all family, except for one woman. And that one woman who was not family but was there at the cross is a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, to be honest with you, there's not a whole lot we know about this woman from the scriptures. Her name is only mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. But we get a little bit of her life story from one verse found in the Gospel of Luke. And so in the Gospel of Luke, it says this in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And he had the twelve with him. So Jesus is traveling with the twelve disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, including Mary called Magdalene, from whom what? What does that even mean? Seven demons were cast out of this woman. Whoa! You know, a demon, by definition, if you were to look it up, would be something like this. A demon is a fallen angelic being who is unclean and immoral in nature and activity. Ugh. Ugh. It says that she had seven of these fallen angelic beings which are unclean and immoral in nature and activity in her. Now, we don't know if she actually had in seven individual of these demons in her, or the number seven in the Bible is also the number for completion. So it could be that she was completely taken over by Satan and, and demonic activity. So we, we can only surmise from this that she must have had a very tortured life. Because in other places where you see demon activity, you see demons casting people on the ground, and you see people uh, coming into kinds of fits. You see a man wandering around tombs naked and cutting himself. You see all sorts of evil things happening to people when demonic activity is in their lives. So we're not sure exactly what was going on in Mary's life, but we do know that under demonic activity, she no doubt had emotional problems. She probably had physical problems. And because demons are immoral and unclean, there's a good chance she also had some terrible immoral problems. 
In fact, according to tradition, now this is only tradition. We do not have any ultimate facts on this. But according to tradition, Mary Magdalene here in Luke chapter 8 is the same woman that Luke introduces us to in the chapter before this. It is the woman with the alabaster flask. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, code word, prostitute. When she had learned that he was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, we're not really sure if this is Mary Magdalene. Again, tradition says that she was not only had seven demons, but she was also a prostitute. Now, the movie, Risen, uh, picks up this idea about Mary. And, and basically, uh, so she's, she was a former prostitute uh, in the movie. So when Clavius understands that Mary Magdalene knows something about the body of Jesus, he's looking for her. And so what he does is he goes into a barracks of men. And he goes, how many know the woman Mary Magdalene? All oh, these guys' hands go up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I need somebody to ID her. Oh, gritty, gritty, tough, rough. And so we're not sure all that went on in Mary Magdalene's life, but we know she had seven demons, seven unclean, immoral beings whose nature and activity is only for her ill. And most likely, she could have been a prostitute. With that in mind, let's read this story found in Luke 7. You see, if Jesus had encountered Mary Magdalene prior to this, and he had cast out her demons, it makes it perfectly understandable that this woman would then bring an alabaster flask of ointment out of gratitude, out of, out of great, great joy for what he had done for her. And it says this, And standing behind him at his feet, she was weeping, and she began to wet his feet with tears and wipe them with her hair, the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anoint, uh, uh, and anoint them uh, with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, uh, if this man were a prophet, uh, he would have known uh, what sort of woman this is touching him, for she is a sinner. Don't you hate it when you think something or say something under your breath and it actually comes out of your mouth? It says this, and Jesus answering him said, he thought he said it quietly, Simon, I have something to say to you. Oh, great, here we go. And he answered, go ahead and say it, teacher. Listen to what Jesus says. A certain moneylender had two uh, debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, a day's wages, and the other owed him only 50. They could not pay, and so he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them, he's him speaking to Simon, uh, the, the man, in, uh, the Pharisee, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet uh, with, with ointment. 
Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. He who is forgiven much, he who is forgiven little, yeah. You know, uh, we look at people like Mary Magdalene. You know, if, if it's true that her story is that she was possessed with seven demons, if it's true that her story is that she was a prostitute, if it's true that, that this is the woman who's coming in weeping and grateful and just overjoyed for having been released from this demonic activity that who knows how long was in her life, there's just this over, overarching sense of gratitude and love towards Jesus for what he did. It's always awesome to watch the lives of people who have been in, in places of incredible degradation and, and incredible sinfulness get rescued by the grace of God and watch Jesus kind of transform their lives, there's this overarching sense of joy, this real, real sense of, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, a couple of years ago, Randy Randall and I went on down to South Carolina, and we went down to something called Celebrate Recovery. Uh, they were hosting a conference there for people who would like to consider hosting Celebrate Recovery at their church, and one of these days we would like to host that here. But while we were there, it was actually at a shopping mall that had gone out of business and was taken over by a church. So this whole mall was just a church. And so we're going there, and in order to get to the front doors to get inside for the conference, there were these masses of people. They were all people who had had their lives transformed by Celebrate Recovery. And they had leathers on and bandanas on, and, and, you know, they had tats all over them. And some of them looked really weathered because of life. But they wouldn't let us get in. We were making our way toward the door, and they were like, oh, we're so glad you're here. And they were kind of loving on us and going, not going to get inside, let go. You know, and they, they, they were putting stuff in our hands. and getting, they, they were so overjoyed. It was so amazing to be in an environment like that. It was just bubbling over with the love of Christ because he had so touched their lives and ripped them out of where they were and transformed them. And we look at stuff like that, and we think, how amazing. How amazing is the grace of God that can reach into the depths of humanity and draw people out and clean them up for his glory. We look at somebody like Mary Magdalene and we're like, wow, that is so awesome. But you want to know the truth? It actually takes more grace to reach someone who is moral, upstanding, well-to-do, has a nice uh, family, has some wonderful degrees from college, has a wonderful career, it is much harder to reach the moral, upstanding, religious person than it is to reach the person who's in the depths of depravity. It is. It just is. And you say, Bill, how do you say that? Well, Jesus said it. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich wealthy, well-to-do, well-educated, moral person to get into the kingdom of God. 
And, and the reason is very obvious. Somebody who has seven demons knows there's nothing they can do to make themselves better or well. They know their need. They know how needy they are. And when Jesus is positioned before them, he's, he's a savior. But when you're moral, upstanding, even religious, you have a nice family and a, and a good education and you're making good income, you don't really need much of Jesus. You don't really need much of his interaction in your life. Last week, uh, right here, uh, stood Jason and Jonathan. And uh, Jason said, we often have people come up to Urban Hope. And when they get there and we take them out into the streets and show them the Kensington area of Philly, he says, uh, people, people see needles on the ground and they watch drug deals going down on the corners. They see people sitting out on their porches with nothing to do. And, and the first thought that comes over, over most of our minds is, oh my gosh, these people need Jesus. But do you remember what he said? People need Jesus just as much in nicely manicured subdivision southern Maryland with its open fields and nice people. We need Jesus as badly as they do. We just don't know it. Their need makes them receptive. It actually takes more of the grace of God to touch a moral, religious heart and open them up to receive Christ. Let me put it this way. It took more grace to save you than it does the most degraded person in the world. You see, he who is forgiven much but he who is forgiven little, you see, we don't know that we've been forgiven that much. We don't understand how much of the grace of God it took to get us where we are today. We just don't get that. You know, we're basically good people. We basically do good things. And you know, Jesus is great to have alongside to make my life a little better. But that's not what it's about. He's here to radically blow up, transform your lives. And not just our actions. We can, we can manage that really well if we get really disciplined. He's after our affections. He's going to change our hearts from being selfish and self-centered in all about pursuing what we want. And he's going to make us love others. He's going to make us selfless. That's what he's up to. So he who loves... I'm sorry, he who, uh, he who is forgiven much, he who is forgiven little... Now, let me help you to understand exactly how much you've been forgiven. Uh, you know, uh, the Bible does not carry forth categories like we do. You know, in our minds, we have immoral people and moral people. That's how we tend to look at people. Uh, there are bums and there are successful business people. There, there are the down-and-outers and the up-and-comers. We tend to categorize people as we see them and their success in this world. Do you want to know how God categorizes humanity? Here it is. Dead. 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 That's how we are in relationship to God. Whether we are dead in our depths of our depravity or dead in our morality, we're still dead. Dead is dead. If I know correctly, you are either dead or you are not. Is that correct? 
Uh, it's a bit like being pregnant. You either are or you are not. You cannot be somewhat. And, and so true with dead. You know, you are either dead or you are not. And they're not, they're not degrees of deadness. Now, there are degrees of decay. And some people live a much more decayed life than others, but they're still dead. And it takes just as much of God's saving grace to reach down and pull somebody who is more decayed and give them life than it does to take a nice, suited corpse and give it life. What I'm trying to say is this. We look at Mary, seven demons cast out, taken away from prostitution, and she's passionate about Jesus. Because those who have been forgiven much, for too many of us, Jesus is just a nice addition to our already shiny lives. We have been forgiven little in our minds, and therefore we tend to love. Yeah. So what I want you to see is, if you are here today, and you are a person who has faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that it probably took more of the grace of God to reach you than somebody in degradation. And it took just as much of the power of God to raise somebody who's in decay to life as it does somebody who's morally... Uh, in, into life you have been forgiven much so much and because you have been forgiven much we are to yeah get passionate about this guy called Jesus get excited about knowing him and following him and pursuing him and wanting to please him with our lives that's what the gospel is all about that's what it means to really know him. So we're going to move on uh, from this part of Mary's life. Um, she is a woman that was radically transformed by, by Jesus Christ, and it's a beautiful story. But I want to go forward with her story a little bit, and I want you to see some ways in which she was passionate that I think God would have us to be passionate in as well. So here we go. One of the ways that Mary was very passionate is this. She had a passion to follow Jesus. She had a passion to follow Jesus. Now, if she was that woman who took out the alabaster flask, broke it, and anointed Jesus, then very early on, uh, she was a follower of Jesus. Uh, it said later in that chapter, actually beginning in the next chapter, that she was one of the disciples. She was one of the followers of Jesus. So she followed Jesus in his life. But we also know that not only did she follow Jesus in his life, but we find her at the cross. So she was following Jesus in his death. Now, we know that John was there, and we know that Judas hung himself. That leaves how many? Disciples. Twelve disciples minus two is? Yes! Where are they? Yeah! Bunch of cowards! They were running for their lives. And yet, where do you find Mary? At the foot of the cross. Oh, she loved him. Oh, she loved him. She followed him in life. She followed him in death. In fact, they had to hastily take down Jesus' body from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea asked for the rights to have the body. He was going to put him in the family tomb, his family tomb. And they had to hastily cover his body. They couldn't do a full preparation for burial because it was close to the uh, beginning of Passover. And so they quickly took care of him, and they put him into the tomb. But you know something? There was this couple of ladies hanging back watching what was going on, and one of them was Mary Magdalene. She saw where they laid him. She knew where the tomb was. Not everybody else knew that. 
So she's following him in life. She followed him in death. And now she's following the body after it's taken down off the cross. And then, of course, we know that later on that she also, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And it says in Mark 16 and verse 9, that he, Jesus, appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She was the first one to see the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Why? That's right. You know, it's amazing what you find out about Jesus if you're willing to follow him. If you're willing to say, Jesus, wherever you take me, wherever we go, I don't care how scared other people are, I'm going to follow. You're going to see stuff and know stuff about Jesus that nobody else is going to know. He wants us to be close to him. He wants us to be those who, who are engulfed with him, and we want him. And you know, in those who are forgiven much, that those who are forgiven little, oh my goodness, we've been forgiven much. May we love him much. May we pursue him. May we be his fully dedicated follower, wanting to know him more, striving to know him more. So we see this as one of the desires of Mary's heart. She just couldn't imagine not being with Jesus. And you know, Jesus' desire is for us to be like that. For those of us who know him, Jesus' desire is simply this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How often? Every day he wants us to walk with him. Follow me every day. It's not easy because it involves taking up the cross, which means I can't do what I want. I will do what he wants. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So she had a passion to follow Jesus. Can I ask you? Do you? Do you have a passion to know more about him? Do you have a hunger to, to understand who he is even better, to, to know him more in your own experience? Do you? See, my concern is those who are forgiven little understand what you've been forgiven. Understand what Christ has done for you. So not only did she have a passion to follow Jesus, but she also had a passion to turn from sin. She had a passion to turn from sin. Think about it with me. Um, here's her Savior. Now, Mary, if she was the woman with the alabaster flask, after she anointed Jesus at this awesome party where there was great food and happy music and this wonderful aroma of the uh, ointment, Jesus said, your sins are what? Yeah, but you see, at that moment, she didn't know what that meant. But now she does. You see, in the life of a believer, sin is not, oh well. It's not like, no big deal. It's not like, we all got our thing. Sin is the kind of a thing that you know put Jesus on the cross, and how can you continue in that which put him there if you truly love him? Do you see the passion? I don't think she went back to prostitution after Jesus rose from the grave. I think she, she went on to love him and serve him with the rest of her life. And so, too, those of us who, who pursue Jesus and seek to know him know that he is not pleased until our lives honestly start to reflect his life. 
And anything in our lives that keeps us from doing that is something that ultimately needs to be dealt with, confessed, and removed. The challenge today, though, is... um, Forgive me. The the challenge today is I am afraid that in many places, and maybe I'm guilty of this too, and I'll just have to confess this. We have taken the beauty and the fullness of the message of the gospel and we have so consolidated it that we're only giving people cliff notes. You see, the whole gospel deals with the whole person and the whole life, and it ultimately deals entirely with sin. That is what the gospel is. It's good news. So let me give you the gospel in a concise place found in the Bible, given to us by none other than the Apostle Paul. Here's the gospel, my friends, the whole gospel. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what we tend to do is only use verses 11 and 13. God loves you, came into this world, died on the cross to forgive you your sins, repent of your sins, embrace him by faith. You're forgiven and you're going to heaven. But what about my life? What about between when I trust him and he takes me home? What about the rest of my life? Well, that actually is what verse uh, 12 is all about. You see, the grace that saves us also sanctifies us, training us to renounce ungodliness because it's not what God desires in our lives and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. This is God's desire. So listen to the full gospel. Justification by faith when we repent or turn from our sins and put faith in Jesus Christ. We are, we are, our sins penalty has been paid. Guilt and shame are dealt with. Over on the other side, God is going to ultimately deliver us from sin's very presence when he glorifies us in his presence. So justification by faith pays sin's debt. Over here, we are removed from sin's presence. But in the middle, during our lives, that which we're living now, God is breaking sin's power in the lives of God's people. That's the gospel. Justification by faith, sanctification, glorification. The gospel. And so Mary was one of those who so loved Jesus that she renounced her past. She wouldn't go back to living that way. How could she do that to the one who loved her so, knowing that her sin put him there? I'm not sure where you're at in your walk with Jesus, but I'm afraid we've become too accommodating in many of our lives to sin. And we practice something one person refers to as sin management. You know, we got this problem over here, but what we do is kind of build our lives around it to protect it so it's not really known, but we don't ever really renounce it. Find the power of God to break its chains in our lives and to set us free. With that in mind, I'm just going to let you know that uh, we have a series coming up after Easter, and it is a series called The Good Life. 
Kingdom Living, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Two weeks after Easter, we're going to kick off this series, and it deals with the heart. It deals with our heart. You see, for too many of us, we know the right answer. But our heart holds the real answer. And with the head and the heart, there is a gulf or a dichotomy. There is hypocrisy. And so it is to bring the heart around so that it is living out in a, in a wonderful way the right answer and no longer just doing what it wants. We're going to go down that path together in the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be transformational, powerful, challenging. But that's what Jesus wants from us. In fact, oh, let me just go back here. Notice Jesus' goal in our lives, verse 14. Uh, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us and take us to heaven. Isn't that what it says? No, 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 no. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Oh, yeah, of good works. Passionate, passionate people. (sighs) Mary had a passion to follow Jesus. She had a passion to turn from sin. And then lastly, she had a passion to witness for him. In the movie, uh, Risen, um, Clavius ends up getting a hold of Mary Magdalene, and he starts interrogating her. And the way in which she talks to Clavius has a huge impact on him and ultimately, I think, helps to lead him to none other than Jesus Christ. Notice how that interchange goes. Why did you run from us? Instinct. I've seen you before. My other life. Yes, she was death. You were there beside his mother. Was she also the woman with you at his tomb? If you knew what happened there, who cares what sees? Enlighten me then. It's beyond us. Spare me the riddles and zealot babble. Where did you take Yeshua? He's right here. Is he a goblin? A sprite? Alive again somehow? Open your heart and see. I see delusion. To keep a crusade alive. I could have what I want. Pulled from you. Put you to death like that. It doesn't matter. Wow. I matter. No. Then give me the others and I'll grant you freedom. I'm already free. Alive or dead. And show me those who follow him. You look for something you'll never find, Tribune. You look for the wrong thing. she was a prostitute. He knew that she had been abused by many a man. But when she sat in his presence with a sense of calm and no fear, 
in, in the face of, I can pull it from you, and, and she didn't care. He knew there was something different about her. He knew that something radical had happened to her. And so you start to see how this plays out in the life of Clavius as he's trying to wrestle with, how can people be like this? Jesus. That's how people can be like this. And this is God's desire in the lives of us, his followers. That his passion would cause us to be passionate about following him and turning from sin and ultimately being a witness for him. You know, the movie is still playing. I think it's done in Manassas, but it's still playing down in Brandywine. Uh, so if you haven't seen it yet, I would encourage you to go check it out. Uh, maybe grab a friend, uh, a family member, maybe a neighbor, somebody, a coworker. Go watch the movie and talk about it, and then consider inviting them to join us as we continue to make our way through the beauty of this backdrop of a movie as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the testimony of the life uh, of Mary Magdalene. And Father, while we don't fully understand her whole story, we see enough to know a woman who had been deeply impacted by the love of God. Father God, it's my prayer for each one of us here to understand the depths of what Christ has done for us so that we would not be those who have been forgiven little but that we would indeed be those who understand that we have been forgiven much, and thus we will love so much. Draw our hearts out, I pray, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?